Good evening. This is, this is the second uh, of a lecture series entitled The Politics of the Courtroom. In my first lecture, I talked about the political lawyer. Today, my subject is the political jury. And I'm very sorry that because of the current restrictions, I cannot be delivering this from Barnard's Inn Hall. The decision by a particular society to use the jury that is a, a number of more or less randomly chosen members of the public with no particular legal training as the arbiter of guilt or lack of guilt is a political one. There's nothing inevitable about such a choice. M many countries across the world vest such questions exclusively in the hands of professional or amateur judges. And, and although one can see the jury as one of the first assertions of a form of democracy in the post classical world. Its arrival at that status came after a long and haphazard journey. The earliest juries in England seem to have constituted a body of men of the locality who were engaged in both hearing evidence as well as applying their own direct knowledge of the facts relating to the crime. So there was no real distinction at this stage between what we would think of today as the distinct roles of the juror and the witness. It was only gradually that the jury became understood to be a body of men, and until the 20th century was exclusively men, who had no personal involvement in the facts of the case, and who were simply invited to bring to bear their supposed collective wisdom to decide on the outcome of a prosecution by reference solely by the evidence presented to them. Since then, the jury evolved, well, since the jury evolved into that status, writers from all perspectives have tended to become rather misty-eyed about the jury. Probably the most famous words ever written about a jury were those of Lord Devlin, one of the greatest judges of the last century, and not a noted sentimentalist who described the jury as, I quote, a little parliament and as the lamp that shows that freedom lives. And there's a, 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 a rather a amusing caricature from the late 18th century that might cast a little doubt on that proposition. The lamp that shows that freedom lives. Since then, the jury has been a contested terrain, which is hardly surprising given the potential significance of the verdict uh, that the jury is entrusted to arrive at. For centuries, governments tried to ensure that juries were composed of placemen who would deliver the desired verdict of guilty in state trials. And judges were not themselves backward in instructing juries in the strongest terms at times as to the verdict they should arrive at. And although a good deal of romance surrounds the institution of the jury, it cannot be denied that many juries did indeed, did indeed prove to be compliant to the will of the executive and the judiciary. The trials of the regicides will give you a flavor. In the trial of John Cook, who prosecuted Charles I and who I described in my first lecture, the judge, Orlando Bridgman, directed the jury uh, uh, referring to the evidence the court had heard as follows. And I've got it up, up on my slide. If these be not avert acts of compassing and imagining the death of the king, I do not know what they are. Before adding by way of afterthought, it must be left to you, members of the jury. And then suggesting, I think you not need go from the bench, a reference to the jury box. Having understood what they were required to do, the jury duly convicted and the foreman of the jury then left the jury box to go to the seats reserved for prosecution witnesses because he was uh, shortly to be a crown witness against the next defendant being tried for regicide. Uh, and that juror was shortly ennobled for his services to the crown. Still, one of the standard heroic narratives of English history is the story checkered and fragmented though it is, of the refusal of jurors to be cowed into subservience by establishment forces 
uh, and the development of the jury into a freestanding institution, unaccountable to the state or the judiciary. And in part, that development came as a result of multiple uh, uh, acts of bravery and defiance on the part of uh, individual jurors. You may think it an established principle that a jury cannot be held accountable for the verdict it collectively arrives at, and you'd be right. But you also might find it extraordinary that for centuries in this country, jurors were at risk of criminal prosecution themselves if they returned a verdict which was supposedly, in the eyes of a judge, contrary to the evidence. There is, in the main hall of today's Old Bailey, a plaque there on the left of the, of the screen to the jurors who sat in the trial of William Penn and William Mead, two Quakers who were charged with unlawful assembly in 1670 after 300 of their co-religionists gathered to worship in the open air in London. After the trial, the jury produced rather equivocal verdicts, which did not satisfy the judges that were presiding and who issued this threat. You can see it on your screen. Gentlemen, you shall not be dismissed till we have a verdict that the court will accept and you shall be locked up without meat, drink, fire and tobacco. You shall not think thus to abuse the court. We will have a verdict by the help of God or you shall starve for it. Uh, the, jury, the jury duly became rather less equivocal in their verdict, but Instead of the guilty verdict the judges had demanded of them, the juries declared the defendants to be not guilty. The infuriated judges promptly fined them for contempt of court <clears throat> and ordered their imprisonment until the fine was paid. What was their alleged misdemeanor? To have delivered a verdict which the judges thought to be contrary to the evidence presented. It was no doubt the danger of finding yourself at risk of criminal liability that had traditionally encouraged juries to take the view that discretion was the better part of valor, and that to do the judge's bidding was generally the wiser course. However, one of these judges, one of these jurors, a, a, a man called Edward Bushell, refused to pay the fine and petitioned a higher court for a writ of habeas corpus, i.e. a writ seeking his release from prison. The case came before the Chief Justice of England, who ordered Bushell to be set free on the grounds that a jury was entitled to arrive at its own verdict on the evidence in accordance with its own collective conscience, even if that verdict was contrary, the, contrary to the direction or view of the judge, or indeed the judge's perception of the evidence. And so, as so often in the English law, the bravery of one person or one group of people Taking a stand caused a gear change and a gear shift towards a more enlightened future. In this case, the principle that a jury was a separate institution placed at arm's length from and independent of the judge. So that by the 18th century, the jury was being extolled in legal writings as a bulwark of liberty against the dangers of corrupt and partial judges willing to do the bidding of the executive. And so we find in 1760, the great legal writer, William Blackstone, describing the jury in the following glowing terms. And I quote, trial by jury ever has been, and I trust ever will be, looked upon as the glory of English law. The liberties of England cannot but subsist as long as this palladium remains sacred and inviolable. Very rousing words, you may think. However, these were the days in the late 18th and early 19th century when the limits of executive power were still being tested in the courts. And of, and of course, judges, even after Blackstone's lapidary words, were still attempting to influence jury verdicts. In one of the trials of the satirist William Hone in 1817 for blasphemy and seditious libel. 
Lord Ellenborough told the jury that the publication which was an issue was, and you can see the quote, a most impious and profane libel. And he continued, believing and hoping that you are Christians, I have not any doubt that you would be of the same opinion. Whereupon, I'm pleased to say the jury found Hone not guilty, and it is said that there was rejoicing in the streets of London at the verdict, and also that Ellenborough's chagrin at the jury's barefaced act of defiance led to his early demise. Now, it was a short step between a jury holding out against judicial bullying to deliver a verdict according to their honest perception uh, of the evidence, and a jury deciding that even though it might have been proved beyond reasonable doubt that the jet defendant had committed the crime with which they were charged, nonetheless, they deserved exoneration, whether because the, they thought the prosecution was oppressive or the defendant was morally blameworthy, blameless rather, or for some other reason. And so developed the concept of the so-called perverse verdict. Now, the word perverse, of course, has a pejorative association here, and um, one can readily imagine verdicts, either of guilt or indeed of acquittal, which are perverse in the sense of simply wrong-headed. But the phrase also developed a wider and perhaps more beneficent meaning. It is in the ability of the jury to deliver a verdict, which although at odds with the evidence or the law, nonetheless seems to be or seems to do justice on a more fundamental level than its capacity to act politically rather than quasi-judicially is most evident. Now, before we look at this more closely, let's remember the traditional division between judge and jury in a criminal trial, as explained by uh, an English judge called Lord Oaksey back in the 1950s. And I quote, it is a general principle of British law that on a trial by jury, it is for the judge to direct the jury on the law and insofar as he thinks necessary on the facts. But the jury, whilst they must take the uh, law from the judge, are the sole judges on the facts. The jury is one of the great protectors of the citizen because it is composed of 12 persons who collectively express the common sense of the community. But the jury members are not experts in the law. And for that reason, they must be guided by the judge on questions of law, says Lord Oaksey. Now, what does this word must mean in this context? Usually, as a matter of law, if you must do something, then if you fail to do it, you are at risk of some sort of sanction. And here lies one of the great anomalies, I think, of the English jury system. A judge will always include in his or her summing up to the jury words to the effect that whilst the facts are solely for them, they must accept the law as the judge lays it down. Take this simple example. Two men get involved in a brawl outside a pub. One punches the other, and the other falls to the ground and dies. The judge will tell the jury that the crime of murder is made out if the defendant kills a person either with intent to kill him or with intent to cause him grievous bodily harm. But the jury, if they wish, can privately take the view that although they accept the evidence demonstrates irrefutably, let's say, that the defendant did indeed intend to kill his victim. Nonetheless, they choose to find him not guilty. Let's say because they take the view the victim deserved, for whatever reason, everything he got. And if the jury takes that view, there's absolutely nothing that anyone can do about it. A verdict of not guilty, however it is reached, however, however overwhelming the evidence, is incapable of review or any form of appeal. It is subject to a very narrow exception indeed involving the discovery of quotes, new and compelling evidence, which I don't go into today. Fine. Now, every jury has to take an oath. And I've quoted it on the screen. I swear by almighty God, or I solemnly declare and affirm 
that I will faithfully try the defendants and give a true verdict according to the evidence. Now, but if that jury breaches that oath, there can be no legal consequences. It may be that those words create a sense of moral honesty, moral obligation, but it can do no more. They can do no more. And going back to Lord Devlin, he said in a celebrated case in the 1960s, it is the conscience of the jury and not the power of the judge that provides the constitutional safeguard against perverse acquittal. Now, you may think that my example of the pub brawl and the jury nonetheless bringing in a verdict of not guilty a rather unlikely one. In fact, it's not unprecedented. Uh, in 1922, a jury in Berlin acquitted a man who had assassinated one of the Ottoman architects of the Armenian genocide and who did not deny that he'd done so. Uh, uh, he said he was justified in doing so, and the jury agreed. But replace the two men uh, outside uh, the pub with a doctor giving her patients a fatal dose of morphine or potassium chloride to ease her suffering in her last days uh, of life. And you may think we're not too far removed from a scenario that actually occurs quite often. I've no doubt that doctors charged with murder in this situation have in the past been acquitted by juries who believed that the defendant had committed the crime of murder. And I should say that murder can be committed for the best as well as the worst of motives, but thought the doctor was entirely justified in doing so. So going back to this word must, that I quoted from Lord Oaksey, uh, uh, it is one that denotes aspiration rather than legal obligation. To, to, to quote from another famous judge of the past, this time Lord Mansfield in a political trial of the 18th century, and I quote, it is the duty of the judge in all cases of general justice to tell the jury how to do right, though they have it in their power to do wrong. And that is a matter entirely between God and their own consciences, said Lord Mansfield. Now, of course, doing right and doing wrong in this sentence can mean different things to different people. The jury who acquits the mercy-killing doctor may be doing wrong in one sense, but doing right in another. Now, in 1981, uh, Dr. Leonard Arthur was prosecuted for attempted murder of an ill baby just days or hours after it had been born. The charge wasn't murder itself because the actual cause of death of the baby couldn't be definitively proved. Uh, it was the occasion, that trial, for the legendary advocate George Carman to produce one of his most famous jury speeches. He said, he said this, um, and I quote, he could, he being Dr. Arthur, like Pontius Pilate, have washed his hands of the matter. He did not because good doctors do not turn away. Are we to condemn him as a criminal because he helped two people, that is the mother of the child, at the time of their greatest need? Are we, condemned, are we to condemn a doctor because he cared? Uh, I hardly need tell you that Dr. Arthur was acquitted after a very short uh, uh, jury recess. There are other well-known instances in recent history of juries delivering so-called perverse verdicts in that wider non-pejorative sense, and I'd like to mention just three. In 1965, a Newcastle uh, uh, bus driver was prosecuted for the theft of Goya's painting of the Duke of Wellington. And uh, we can see uh, uh, the great Kempton Bunton on the left of the screen. He, he was a passionate believer that old age pensions should not be required to pay the television license fee. And for reasons best known to himself, decided to remove the portrait uh, recently purchased by the nation from the National Gallery in a spectacular act of English daring do. And he then purported to hold the painting to ransom, as he put it, against his demands for uh, uh, the, the license fee uh, for, for the over 75s being, being abolished. He eventually, his campaign having failed, returned the painting and was duly prosecuted in the Old Bailey. 
but he was acquitted of theft of the painting on the grounds, as argued by his counsel, that he was merely borrowing the painting. Now, I think we can explain the acquittal as a jury's response to a caper that seems to have been um, dreamt up in the Ealing studios. Here was a, an amiable eccentric who had in some way added to the gaiety of life. And the jury took the view that the prosecution was oppressive and unnecessary. More notable, my second example, was the prosecution of Clive Ponting in 1983. We can see him on the right side of the screen. Ponting, as many of you will recall, was a civil servant who worked in the Ministry of Defence uh, during the Falklands War. He discovered facts that contradicted the official government account concerning the circumstances of the sinking of the Argentinian, Argentinian uh, battleship General Belgrano. And he disclosed uh, those circumstances to the Labour MP Tam Diel, as I'm sure many of you remember. He was subsequently prosecuted under the Official Secrets Act. Uh, and his response was to say that what he did was in the interests of the state, which he said should constitute a defense to the charge. Now, the judge, uh, who happens, I should say, to have been my father-in-law, uh, told the jury that as a matter of law, the interests of the state were synonymous with the policy of the conservative government of the day, which of course was not the same as Ponting's own view of things. Uh, and the judge therefore told the jury that it was no defense for Mr. Ponting to say that he honestly believed that it was his moral duty in the interests of the state to make the disclosure to the Labour MP. The jury simply disregarded that direction and acquitted Ponting. Uh, the final instance is perhaps the most remarkable of all. Two weeks ago, the death of the spy George Blake dominated the headlines, as I'm sure you all remember. His extraordinary life and the uh, uh, magnitude of his crimes were accounted in the many obituaries that appeared in the newspapers. You'll recall that Blake had been sentenced to 42 years in prison in 1961. And uh, at the time, that was the longest uh, prison sentence ever passed in an English court. And you'll also recall that he uh, uh, dramatically escaped from Wormwood Scrubs a few years later, um, assisted by two young, young idealistic uh, peace campaigners, Michael Randall and Pat Pottle. And um, we can see photographs of uh, uh, Randall and Pottle um, now on the next, on the next screen. Um, 25 years later, these campaigners found themselves in themselves in the Old Bailey, uh, charged with their part in the escape. Now, they put forward a defense of so-called, I quote, necessity of conscience, i.e., they said they'd been obliged to act uh, uh, to prevent the psychological harm that Blake's long sentence would, uh, so they said, inevitably cause him, and therefore that aiding and abetting his escape was justified. Now, as a matter of law, such a defense had simply no application uh, to the facts of the case. Nonetheless, throughout the trial, they lost no opportunity at all in um, explaining to the jury that they had acted out of principle and that the prosecution brought so many years after the event was oppressive and abusive. Quoting Bertrand Russell, they said to the jury, remember your humanity and forget the rest. Again, the jury agreed and acquitted. To the barely concealed disgust of the, of the judge sitting in the, high, in the Old Bailey, who had told them that the jurors had to, quotes, loyally honor my ruling on the law, the jurors acquitted both defendants, presumably on the grounds that they took the view that the prosecution was indeed oppressive and whatever the law might say or might not say, wasn't going to deter them, deter them from delivering what they perceived to be a just verdict. Now, I wonder how many of you would approve of each of those acquittals. You might doubt the rightness of the verdict while accepting that the jury system necessarily carries with it the right on the part of the jury to deliver a verdict which is in the sense I've articulated, perverse. Depending on your point of view, the occasional perverse verdict 
may be seen as either the triumph or the inevitable price of the jury system. Now, there have been various responses to the jury's power to deliver a perverse verdict. You might expect ju judges to take rather a dim view of juries who ignore judicial directions on the law and deliver verdicts at variance with the evidence. Well, not all have. Some have celebrated that power. Another great uh, 20th century judge, Lord Burkitt, said in the 1950s, and I quote, a jury can do justice where a judge who has to follow the law sometimes may not. This sentiment might be thought a rather refreshing recognition that sometimes law and justice diverge. A jury is free to follow the path of justice, but the judge will always be bound to follow the path of law, which you might think is a good reason why the final decision in a criminal trial on guilt or lack of guilt is best left to a jury. On the other hand, others might respond that the notion that a jury can, at its own discretion, set up its own conception of justice against the collective wisdom constituted by the English law makes a mockery of the notion that a, that a person is entitled to be judged according to what we describe as the rule of law. Another conundrum is as follows. Is it proper for an advocate acting on behalf of his or her client, the defendant, to tell straight that it has the power to disregard the facts and the law, to in effect disregard their oath. Now, this issue arose in a very famous Canadian case called the Crown against Morgenthaler. Now, some of you may remember um, Dr. Morgenthaler, who was a doctor who ran an abortion clinic in Toronto in defiance of the law as it then stood. He believed that a woman had, I quote, an unfettered right to choose whether or not an ab abortion is appropriate in her individual circumstances. Now, he was duly prosecuted for conspiracy to perform illegal abortions, and undoubtedly he was guilty if one assumes that the Canadian statute, as it stood at the time, was not unconstitutional. And there's a power in Canada to strike down statutes on constitutionality, and indeed, the statute was duly struck down. But assuming the statute was uh, uh, valid, then Dr. Morgenthaler was guilty. Now, his counsel at his trial said this to the jury uh, who was trying the case. Uh, and I quote, the judge, and there it is on the screen, the judge will tell you what the law is. He will tell you about the ingredients of the offense what the Crown has to prove, what the defences may or may not be, and you must take the law from him. But I submit to you that it is up to you and you alone to apply the law to this evidence, and you have a right to say it shouldn't be applied. So in effect, counsel was saying to the jury, notwithstanding the blandishments at the beginning of that quote, don't apply this law if you think, as I submit, that it is a bad law. Send a signal to Parliament that it should change the law. In effect, act politically. Now, the case went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, and much of the case was decided was taken up with whether the law was unconstitutional, and the Supreme Court duly found that it was unconstitutional. Nonetheless, the, the Chief Justice of Canada then turned to the question of whether counsel had been correct in saying what he said. Um, and he said this, the judge, and I quote, the contrary principle contended for by doctor, by the counsel for Dr. Morgenthaler, that a jury may be encouraged to ignore a law it does not like, could lead to gross iniquities. One accused could be convicted by a jury who supported the existing law, whilst another person indicted for the same offense could be acquitted by a jury who, with reformist zeal, wish to express disapproval of the same law. Moreover, a jury could decide that although the law pointed to a conviction, the jury would simply refuse to apply the law to an accused for whom it had sympathy. Alternatively, 
A jury who feels antipathy towards an accused might convict despite a law which points to acquittal. To give a harsh, but I think telling example, said the Supreme Court, the, the, the Chief Justice, a jury fueled by the passions of racism could be told that they need not apply the law against murder to a white man who killed a black man. Such a possibility, possibility need only be stated to reveal the potentially frightening implications of the council's assertions. Now, I think there's quite a good deal of wisdom in those words that I've quoted. Um, and the great South African advocate, Sidney Kentridge, recalled a time in the 1950s when he was practicing South Africa in South Africa, when defendants had the right to choose trial by judge alone or by jury. And Kentridge recalls that when he represented black defendants, he would always advise them to choose trial by judge rather than by jury on the basis that any jury would be comprised as a result of the legislation then in place solely of white men who might well be biased against his, defend his defendant client. So sometimes a perverse verdict is not a matter of reformist zeal, but of entrenched prejudice. And I think it's worth recalling that, that perverse verdicts are not always uh, uh, steps in towards a brighter future, so to speak. Now, so far as I'm aware, the, the view of the Supreme Court judge in that case in Canada um, reflects exactly the English position, i.e. it would be professionally improper for an English barrister to invite the jury to ignore the judge's direction on the law or to disregard the evidence. And no doubt that's why Michael Randall and Pat Pottle being prosecuted in the Old Bailey made the very wise decision to dispense with their counsel uh, before their trial, because as litigants in person, they were free uh, uh, to say things to the jury, which no professional advocate could properly say. Now, you might think that it's a rather anomalous situation here. A jury has the power to, quote, do wrong, to use Lord Mansell's expression, but it cannot be told of that power by the lawyers acting for any of the parties or even by the judge. It must be kept entirely ignorant of uh, uh, one of its most fundamental attributes. Indeed, Lord Devlin, who we've heard from before, went so far as to say that, I quote, it is the so-called perversity of juries that justifies their existence. But according to the English law, the jury must divine that foundational power for themselves, unassisted by the judge or the lawyers. Now, another response to the judge's power to deliver, a, to the jury's power to deliver a perverse verdict was proposed by an English judge, Sir Robin Ault, when he carried out in 2001 his wide-ranging review of the criminal courts of England and Wales. Now, when addressing the issue of perverse juries, Old noted that when the jury in the Randall and Pottle case brought in a verdict of not guilty, they had acted contrary to their oath. And he proposed um, a new law. And I have it up on the uh, screen here. The law, Lord Justice Old said, should be declared by statute, if need be, that juries have no right to acquit defendants in defiance of the law or in disregard of the evidence, and that judges and advocates should conduct criminal cases accordingly. Now, uh, uh, Professor Michael Zander, um, a very well-known um, legal uh, uh, scholar, responded to that proposal with the quote that I put at the end of that slide. I regard this proposal as wholly unacceptable, a serious misreading of the function of the jury. The right, said Professor Zander, to return a perverse verdict in defiance of the law or the evidence is an important safeguard against unjust laws, oppressive prosecutions or harsh sentences. And I should say that Old's proposal was never brought into effect. And in fact, the arc of the jury's development has been in broad historical terms to entrench its independence from the judge and the litigants in any case, and its freedom of decision-making 
and also to make it more representative of the nation from which the jurors are drawn. Let me give three instances of this. I could give many more. First, earlier in this lecture, I mentioned Lord Devlin's mini parliament, as he described it. Well, just as the franchise has widened over the centuries, so has the, the composition of the jury. Jurors can now sit until the age of 75. Uh, I should say five years after the age of compulsory retirement of most judges. Women began to sit in juries in the beginning of the 20th century, and of course now make up 50% of juries. And in the early 19th century, property qualifications, i.e. you had to own a particular amount of wealth before you could sit on a jury, you might find that astonishing, were removed. And indeed, um, until the early two, until the early 2000s, lawyers and clergymen were not allowed to sit on juries, and that exemption has been um, abolished as well. In fact, there are only a very small uh, 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 set of categories of people who are not entitled to sit on juries anymore. I should say the Queen and the royal family are one of them. So, at least to a very large extent, the mini parliament has become by the 21st century, a lot more representative than it was. The second example, even if the evidence which is, which is adduced before the jury is overwhelming, and even if it's uncontested in substance by the defendant, it is an absolutely clear rule that the judge cannot trespass on the jury's province and say to them, look here, members of the jury, on the facts you've heard, you can do no other than convict this defendant. To do that would be a serious impropriety on the part of the judge. Um, and that rule was justified in a relatively recent House of Lords decision by Lord Bingham um, on a rather charming basis. He said that however clear cut the, the case might look to the judge, um, uh, uh, the evidence might have generated nuances not recognized by the ju judicial mind, i.e. that the jury might have been able to bring to bear some demotic insight which had evaded the rather more jaded judge. So however overwhelming, the judge cannot say to the jury, you must and should convict. The third instance is that the law was um, 40 years ago or so clarified to make it a contempt of court, and now it's a, indeed a criminal offence, for anyone to inquire into or disclose the deliberations of the jury in any given trial. Now, back in 1979, Jeremy Thorpe was, as you'll all remember, tried for conspiracy to murder. Despite the notoriously pro-defence summing up of the, of the judge, his acquittal, nonetheless, um, caused a good deal of surprise amongst many people, given the sheer weight of the evidence against Thorpe. And afterwards, two journalists from the New Statesman interviewed one of the members of the jury to find out what had actually passed in the privacy of their deliberating room. And then the, the New Statesman published a long article disclosing what had actually happened. Now, the juror who spoke out in that case uh, uh, was not motivated by money. Rather, he wanted to protest against what he perceived as the failures of the criminal justice system in that case. And I've not got time to go into precisely what he said. Uh, but that juror had, in the eyes of many, committed an unpardonable sin. He had violated the secrets of the judicial, of the jury deliberation room. Now, what happened? Well, the attorney general in the then recently elected Thatcher government decided to act and brought a, uh, uh, an application to commit the new statesman for contempt of court um, for its temerity in publishing uh, uh, to the world at large the inner thoughts of the Thorpe jury. Now, this came to court and the, the court considered the law as it then stood. And although they quoted from many statements by judges saying what an outrage it would be for a jury to a juror to, to disclose the secrets of the deliberation, nonetheless decided that, that the journalists were not uh, 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 in contempt of court. Now, this created a great stir and led to the hasty enactment 
of Section 8 of the Contempt of Court Act 1981. Um, that section provides uh, provided as follows, and I'm going to quote it on, my, on the screen. Um, it is a contempt of court to obtain, disclose, or solicit any particulars of statements made, opinions expressed, arguments advanced, or votes cast by members of a jury in the course of their deliberations in any legal proceedings. And broadly, the same words apply now, but in a slightly different statute. Just pause to consider those words and how broadly and how widely the prohibition is cast. For the last 40 years, it's effectively been a criminal offence to carry out any academic research uh, or bona fide journalistic inquiry into judicial decision-making in any given case. Now, you might think, well, why should this be? Well, why is there this all-encompassing protective veil cast over the deliberations of the jury? Now, I think that most people tacitly accept that a principal reason for it for this prohibition is because that if the veil was not so cast, the reality of what in fact takes place in the jury deliberation room might not make for entirely edifying uh, reading. As I mentioned earlier, uh, legal writers love to glorify the jury as an aggregation of the supposed collective wisdom of the English and Welsh Scottish and Northern Irish citizenry. The process by which the jury applies that wisdom and arrives at its verdict can be the subject of eulogy, it might be said, provided it is not the subject of empirical investigation. Uh, similarly, in order to maintain the illusion of some sort of numinous process of truth divination, the jury, unlike any other decision maker in the legal sphere gives no reasons. It merely utters the words in 99.9% .9 of occasions, guilty or not guilty. A judge who delivered a judgment without reasons would be the subject of severe and justified criticism. And his or her decision would be bound to be set aside on appeal if they gave no decisions. But the jury is placed in a separate and distinct category. Not only is it not obliged to give reasons, it's possibly prohibited from doing so. Again, I suspect that one reason for this is that a jury's written rationalization of its decision-making process might not, in many cases, uh, uh, be an entirely co comprehensible read. Now, decision-making in all walks of life is increasingly an, an expert enterprise. We would hope that the diagnosis of illness would be left in the hands of a suitably qualified doctor rather than a quack or a mountebank. We would also hope that the examiner who decides the grades for our children's GCSEs or A-level results had expertise in the relevant field and the capacity to distinguish between a good from a poor student after one, we would hope, years of study experience. But when it comes to the ascertainment of guilt, we as a nation are content to leave that decision to 12 basically randomly chosen individuals, a bunch of amateurs, as somebody once rather unkindly called them, without regard to their educational attainments or achievements or their skills in the ascertainment of truth. Now, many writers over the years have considered the institution of the jury from a rather more contrarian and jaded perspective to, though, to that espoused by those great judges I've quoted, Lords Devlin and Burkett. And indeed, the late Louis Blanc Cooper uh, uh, published his last book in 2018, and it was an extended critique of the jury system. And Blanc Cooper drew attention to the fact that the jury in civil cases, as opposed to criminal cases, has now basically been abolished, and nobody's created any hullabaloo about that, and there's been notice of, no noticeable uh, derogation from the rule of law in that, so he said, and with some justice. He pointed to the, as he considered it, the practical impossibility of a jury understanding the mass of complex evidence in some long fraud trials. He, he pointed to the success of the Diplock courts in Northern Ireland, 
where judges sat alone for many years because of the danger of jury intimidation in terrorist cases. And finally, he pointed to the fact that for all our romanticization of the jury trial, the jury trial, in fact, only about 1% of crimes charged in this country, in fact, end up being tried before a jury. All interesting and important points, it might be said. Nonetheless, as far as I can see, there is no prospect in any foreseeable future of the system, the jury system being changed uh, uh, in any fundamental way. And I certainly, for what it's worth, wouldn't advocate it. Well, why not, you may ask? Well, the answer takes me back to the starting point of the title of my lecture. Not only can the jury act politically, and I've given some instances of that in its ability to deliver a so-called perverse verdict, but it is, as an institution, inherently political. It is part of the organizational structure of our society. And it's a kind of accommodation, in the best English tradition, of competing social and moral demands. I don't believe that a jury exists because it is genuinely perceived to be the best mechanism yet devised for the ascertainment of truth. I suggest that it exists because in order for a justice system to work, it has to command the confidence and respect of the populace at large, it has to command the confidence and respect of you and me and everyone else. And I suspect that most of us would prefer to be tried by 12 random people like us, people like us, rather than a judge who rightly or wrongly, and I suspect in reality, given the current makeup of the judiciary wrongly, we perceive as not like us. And also, a verdict of guilty, uh, I'm so sorry, a verdict of guilty delivered by a jury carries with it somehow a stamp of legitimacy, which the verdict of a single judge or a single judge even sitting with assessors, which happens in some jurisdictions, might not. It would be, uh, uh, not justice imposed on high, but jury justice is justice being delivered in a way quasi-democratically. Now, it is interesting that when a verdict of guilty is delivered by a jury, very few people quarrel with it. Its anonymity and its lack of reasons for all the criticisms that can be made of that, in fact, invested with an authority which no judge verdict could command. A guilty verdict provided by a judge would have to be a reasoned one. <clears throat> and once reasons are forthcoming as to why a judge has found X or Y guilty, however well argued and well reasoned those those, those, uh, uh, that verdict may be, those reasons may be, they can be unpicked, they can be challenged, they can be disputed. And I can well imagine such a verdict being contested, not necessarily in the sense of being challenged uh, in the Court of Appeal, but contested in the sense of not commanding overwhelming community support. Now, in circumstances where the magistracy and the judiciary is still overwhelmingly white, this actually matters. Uh, uh, you'll remember that David Lammy produced a, a very interesting report on inequality in a very concerning report on inequality in the criminal justice system a few years ago. And he found that the jury was the only part of the system with adequate ethnic diversity. Uh, and if that system means that some people are, are acquitted who should have been convicted, uh, uh, whether because a jury was baffled by the evidence or bamboozled by the wiliness uh, and the advocacy of defence counsel, then I think the answer must be so be it. The alternative would be very significantly worse, I suggest. Uh, and let me just pause there. There is one other uh, really positive byproduct of the jury system, which again is political. Um, jury service can apparently have transformative effects on the individual jury members. According to research by 
a very well-known um, academic in this field, Dr. Cheryl Thomas, the experience of being a jury, a juror is actually empowering. Jurors generally described as an interesting and educational one, and in some cases an inspirational one. And they said that afterwards they were more likely to vote, having been a juror, and that they were more likely to be involved in community and civic groups. Um, the politics of the jury trial came back into focus uh, uh, last year as the pandemic closed the courts and created a conundrum for the court service and the Justice Secretary. How to clear the huge backlog of Crown Court trials in circumstances where it's very difficult to practically bring back juries in a safe way into courts. Now, uh, proposals were put forward uh, which would have had the effect of temporarily abrogating the right to jury trial in various categories of, of offence and to replace it uh, uh, in those categories with judge-only trials. The result was interesting. It was on most, in, in most sectors of the population, uproar. Apparently, 93% of the members of the criminal bar opposed the idea, even though it would have been economically advantageous uh, uh, for them to promote it because they'd start get back to court doing some work, doing some trials. Um, in response to, the to that proposal, a, a former chair of the Criminal Bar Association, Francis Fitzgibbon, Queen's Council, wrote a piece in the um, London Review of Books, and I've quoted it there, and he concluded um, as follows, and I think it's a good way to conclude this lecture. A good jury turns into a little community, Baroness Hale has said, working together in the interest of justice. As a jury advocate, says Francis Fitzgibbon, for over 30 years, I've always been impressed and often humbled by the care and dedication they give to their work. Academic research supports the experience of uh, criminal lawyers, that juries are fair and do their utmost to bring in the right result. In every case, it isn't just the defendant on trial, the state itself is on trial too, in public and before its citizens. Can it prove its case to the high standard the law requires? Has it used its coercive powers wisely and lawfully? Have its operatives in the courtroom, the judge and the lawyers, conducted themselves properly? The proposal uh, uh, for abrogating the right to, to trial by jury was not, or at least has not yet been pursued. Instead, across the country, perspex screens are being erected and fitted in courtrooms, and juries are returning to carry out their centuries-old civic responsibility. Thank you very much for listening.